Good morning. Today's Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 4 and 8 through 11. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release the, to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are the people from whom the Lord is blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all of our nations. Here ends the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading tonight, or today, comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, and then 19 to 28. The first three verses I will read come from the prologue of first 18 or 14 verses of John, which form... Um, a poetic, perhaps drawn from a hymn from the early church. And then we speak about the beginnings of the ministry of John, the one we call the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know. 
the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. O holy God, by your grace, may we once again hear your holy word, your word for us through these human words. In your son's name we pray, amen. There was a recent date circled on the calendars of Carrie and of each of our daughters, a December date, and it had nothing to do with birthdays or anniversaries or even basketball games. On December 8th, Netflix released season two of The Crown, the ambitious series which describes the events in England and the world and in the royal family during the many decades of Queen Elizabeth's rule. I have to admit that for a number of reasons that have nothing to do with the glamour of royalty, I have thoroughly enjoyed it as well. And one of those reasons is watching the Queen's husband, Prince Philip, grapple with the challenges to his not-so-small ego. Despite him being the grandson of a Greek king and a descendant of a Danish king, the people in England wonder whether he is really worthy of being the husband of their queen. A decorated member of the Royal Navy during World War II, when he marries her, he must immediately resign his commission and for all intents and purposes, push aside any job or career for the rest of his life. A thorough male chauvinist, this is the 50s, he had always to walk behind his wife, and he could never, ever disagree with her, or he always had to defer to her publicly. As you can imagine, he often fumes and chafes at those limits. And while it's hard for any of us to imagine what it would be like to be married to royalty, it's not that hard to imagine how frustrated we might be if we were a permanent satellite to another person always pushed out of the spotlight. I imagine that all of us, at least for a short time, have faced something of that and found it hard. In politics, in business, in sport, in couples, among siblings, it can be very difficult for someone to play second fiddle to another in all times and places. Perhaps that's what's most unique about John, this figure that we've just read about, the one we often call the Baptist. To be sure, as the other gospel tells us, he dresses uniquely, wearing cloaks of camel's hair, and he has this weird diet of locusts and wild honey. But perhaps what is most unusual about him is he has no problem playing second fiddle to Jesus. As the canon theologian at the Birmingham Cathedral in England has written, 
In our world in which personal status and success, it is so important. It's hard to get our heads around the concept of someone whose whole reason for being is to point beyond themselves to someone else. John's role and the relationship of that role with Jesus' messiahship is the focus of this passage in the Gospel of John, which, by the way, was written by a different John. As I mentioned, it was in, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that we learn what John looks like, what he ate, and really what he preached. He's not even called the Baptist or baptizer here in the Gospel of John. Instead, we learn in the poetic words of the opening verses of the Gospel that he himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. And then the second part of the passage today, we read about his encounter with the team sent out from Jerusalem to find out who this person thinks he is. And to their questions, John is remarkably consistent. Does John think he's the Messiah? No. Elijah? No. The prophet? No. He is simply the one preparing the way for the Messiah. The one for whom he's not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. John knows who he is. And he knows who he is not. He was not sent to compete with Jesus, but to bear witness to Jesus. Now, living here and now, it may be even harder to identify with this John than it is with that Prince Philip, husband of the British Queen. But in fact, John is intended to be a model and example for us all at least if we want to know our proper place and role. Like John, we are not the Messiah. We are not the center. We are not the light. But like John, we have a role to play in our own way, in our own lives. Like John, we're called to be witnesses to the light, to the Messiah, to the center. First, we're not the light. We're not the Messiah. If any statement could be called stating the obvious or worthy of Homer Simpson's dough, that is it. But as John Stendhal has written, messianic ambitions for ourselves and messianic expectations of others are not just the quaint delusions of people certified as mentally ill. They're found in us and around us as we seek too much from others or wish too much from ourselves. Consider some of the more subtle implications of that statement that seems so obvious. We are not saviors. While it's important to be responsible people, we have to be careful that we do not take on more responsibility than God wants us to bear. Before Pope Francis, the Pope I have always admired the most is Pope John XXIII. And I love the humility of the statement he was overheard saying one night, God, this is your church. I'm going to bed. And while it's important to care for others, we cannot rescue others as much as we might want to do so. We cannot change other people. We can only change ourselves. 
As the theologian Bob Dylan once sang, you say you're looking for someone who's never weak but always strong to protect you and defend you whether you are right or wrong. Someone to open each and every door, but it ain't me, babe. It ain't me you're looking for. We are also not the judge. Only Christ is. We may well judge actions and words of others. John certainly does that. It will eventually lead to him losing his head when he judges the actions of Herod. But we are not called to judge people. No Christian or church leader or television preacher can ever declare that they know or are in a position to know who stands outside of God's grace, love, and mercy. And we are not the Messiah. Since our beginning as Presbyterians, we've always been wary of giving too much power to any political or church leader because there's only one Messiah and the rest of us are all sinners. Indeed, beware of any leader of a church or country that claims that God is on their side because that leader or that church or that country becomes susceptible to thinking that God is their servant rather than the other way around. To, to paraphrase the Proverbs, pride goeth before the fall. We already have a Messiah, and to channel Bob Dylan, he ain't us. Second, while we are not the light, we still have a role to play. Like John, we're called to be witnesses to the light. The season of Advent is a time for us to focus on the light of Christ, to remember that Christ is intended to be at the center of our lives. And it can be a challenge to do that in this season when there is so much hubbub. But that's what we're doing when you think about it right now through our worship as we reorient ourselves so that the center of our being is no longer ourselves, but one who is much, much greater. When we focus on the light of Christ and we're able to see the one who is greater than any of the problems or obstacles that we are facing. When we focus on the light of Christ, we're able to have a reason for a hope that can overcome despair because the foundation of that hope is not our capacity to handle life's issues, but God's capacity to handle us and anything else that we might encounter. And when we focus on the light of Christ, then we cannot help but look beyond our lives and our needs and our concerns to the lives and needs and concerns of others. But we do not just focus on the light, we also give witness to the light. Through our words, to be sure, but even more through our actions, we give witness to the light so that others might find faith or trust in God and the light of God, even when it is dark. We give witness to the light so that others can get a glimpse of what life is meant to be like when God sets things right, when God's will is indeed done on earth as it is in heaven. We give witness to the light of Christ so that others might discover a hope that rests not on human achievements, not on a simple forward trend of events, 
and not simply on a positive spirit or a cheerful optimism. No, the hope that we give witness to is grounded in the love and grace and power of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Witnesses to the light. John's calling is, in fact, our own calling. Just as he is called to point beyond himself to deflect attention ever outward to the one who is the light of the world, so we are called to do the same. If you think about it, John's ministry sets up a chain of which we are now a part. Witnesses to the like, like a woman I heard of for the first time this week, Rachel Anderson. She's an ordinary Christian woman living in Michigan. In 1948, she traveled with her Danish-born husband to meet some of his relatives and to attend events related to the World Council of Churches, which was just forming then in a couple years after the war. On that trip, she saw firsthand the destruction that the war had brought to so much of Europe. And she was in Amsterdam when for the first time since somewhere near the beginning of the war, the lights were turned on in the city. She later described it as pure magic, filled with joy and laughter. But in that moment, she also received a calling. She decided then and there, in her words, never to let the lights go out again. And so she did what she could. She came home and started working with another minister, a simple exchange program called, that later became called Youth for Understanding, that sent children or youth from high schools in Germany to the United States and children from high schools in the United States to Germany. Since that humble start in 1951, Youth for Understanding has grown so that last year it served 260,000 children in 55 countries, including Jews and Muslims and Christians from the Middle East. In 1973, Rachel Anderson, who was widowed at 27 with three children, was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Witnesses to the light. It can be simple as a matter of paint. In 2015, an Anglican church in one of the slum areas of Nairobi and a Muslim mosque both painted their outward buildings yellow. In their words, the color of love. At a time of great ethnic violence in that community and in much of that part of Kenya, one of the members of the Anglican church said, that yellow color indicates that we can work together for peace as people of faith. Witnesses to the light can be someone like the Philadelphians Brandy Price and Adam Bruckner and Joe Oster, who were recently profiled in the Enquirer. Price is 27 and a single mother of three who desperately wanted to learn to read well, to get her high school degree and find a job and help her children escape the cycle of poverty. Bruckner is a former professional soccer player who's a youth outreach minister with a homeless ministry in the city. And he linked Price with Oster, who is, works for the University of Pennsylvania Health System, but feels called as a volunteer to teach reading to adults in some of the housing projects in Philadelphia. 
So he'd met with Price over months. He taught her to read at a 10th grade level, 11th grade level, and a 12th grade level so that she could not just get a GED, but get a full high school degree. She had to take some of her coursework online, and all she could do was do it on a phone because she couldn't afford a computer, but she completed it. Oster says, tenacious is the word that I would use for her. She had so much going on in her life, but she just stuck it out. I love her. And when she completed the work, I bawled. Witnesses to the light. Witnesses to peace, to love, to tenacity, to new opportunities, to justice, to hope. Sometimes what we can do can seem so small and the world can seem so big. Sometimes the light that we can share with others seems so dim and the darkness can be so great. But that's okay. We already have a Messiah and he ain't us. All we have to do is point to him with our words and our actions. The world indeed can often be dark. In Advent, we light candles on a wreath, not just to mark the days and weeks as we approach Christmas, but we light these candles here at church on the wreaths at our homes to remind us of the light of Christ, This light, indeed, is not very impressive compared to the artificial lights that you can see out there in the world. But this light symbolizes the true light that has come into the world, the only light that can dispel the darkness. Friends, we are called to witness to that light. Let us never tire of doing so. Let us never give up. Let us never surrender. Come, let us walk in the light.